So Mary, sometimes I like to rattle a series of things off in our opening and have you find the common denominator. Okay. This is stressful, but I'm going to do it. Let's do it. So knit your brow and get ready. What do Betty Davis, Eleanor Roosevelt, Queen Elizabeth, and Molly McIntyre all have in common? Um, Queer icons. Um, Am I wrong? You are not wrong, but they also all chose to knit for the war effort in the 1940s. Wow. That's, that's quite a yarn. Thank you. <laughs> Welcome, everyone, to American Girls, the podcast. This is the show where we're reliving the American Girl series book by book. I'm Mary. I'm still Allison. I can't believe you hit me with those knitting facts. You know that's such a gap in my knowledge, but I had no idea about Betty Davis. That blew my mind. So that also blew my mind. And, you know, I was just casually looking on the internet, getting ready for our discussion of Molly Learns a Lesson, which involves quite a bit about yarn and knitting. And I stumble across a propaganda poster that says, remember Pearl Harbor, Pearl Harder. And it's like, if you think we haven't won wars with puns before, you just haven't read posters. Or this book in which Molly tries to weaponize a pun to a very unclear end. Yeah. Molly has yet to meet a pun that she didn't want to use (laughs) and use and overkill. But Molly is a delight in this book, as always. Molly is like so much in this book. It's beyond my comprehension. Again, I made the mistake of reading this late at night by myself. So I could not (laughs) scream at moments when I truly felt I needed it. Yeah. And so I guess like I've been holding that in for the past 24 hours and I'm about to let it all out. So I can't wait for this. Molly Learns a Lesson has a cover, the cover that I am reading, I should say, which is a a second version from the 1990s. Molly is sitting at her desk, pencil to her face. She's looking pensive. And I guess I'm just wondering, you know, where the estate of Britney Spears is at with contacting this company, because it's exactly the same pose as the iconic Baby One More Time video where Britney Spears is pretending to be a student because she was robbed of her education by her greedy family. This is a very fraught time to invoke uh, Comrade Spears because, (laughs) as I'm sure you know, she lost her recent legal battle this week with her dad. He's still a conservator of her, um, you know, finances and basically total life. So the Free Britney movement continues. And, you know, I just have to hope that behind closed doors, she like, can we smuggle her a copy of this book? Like, can this be a liberatory text? I mean, we know from previous research and listener feedback that she owned a Felicity. So, I mean, we know that she's in this world and I feel like, you know, maybe a bitty baby or something could be a vessel for change. I feel like it could be. And it's like, this is making me want to revisit. I'm not a girl, not yet a woman. Because it's like, was that actually a direct response to Molly McIntyre in some ways? I think that was at Felicity because she's immature. Okay. Yeah, that feels fair. Molly's not exactly a, a bastion of maturity at this this book. Uh, <laughs> no, definitely um, not. She's also at a crossroads of her own, as we discussed off air. That yeah, like basically, if you read this book, you either come away thinking Molly's a sociopath, or once you clock the fact that this is a young queer icon, you're like, okay, all of her behavior makes total sense. 
Yeah, I think it does. I think it does. I mean, it basically opens with like a probably two paragraphs, too long love letter to her teacher. Yeah, I mean, that was interesting to me because I feel like in some ways, those of us who are straight listening to this show, I mean, not me, but those of you (laughs) straight listening to this show, everyone can remember being a young person in school and just maybe idolizing a teacher. Like there was probably at least one teacher that you're like, whoa, this person is so cool. And they're an adult who seems also young and also sort of interesting in a way that fellow adults, my parents are not. So it's kind of like Mr. Turner in Boy Meets World where it's like, whoa, he's got a leather jacket and a motorcycle. Like, what's his whole deal? That's Molly in this book with this teacher. But then it kind of it's so intense where she's like, she's beautiful. Her hair is gorgeous. It's so smooth. And she's wearing a diamond ring that when the light catches it, it throws off rainbows of light. And it's like dot, dot, dot. (laughs) I'm sure it does. I'm sure it does. Sure it does. Yeah, she's forging a real rainbow connection in the opening scene of this book. And, you know, we'll get into it. I do just have, you know, because you invoked, you know, like the hetero world. I do feel like we have to kind of, you know, pour one out very briefly for the fact that mustaches have been an entire plot line on this, you know, season and a half of The Bachelor. And we're out of guard land. And I just feel sad that we're not reading Samantha during this time where there's so much mustache discourse on Bachelorette. It's unfortunate that the producers have yet to consult us, Um, you know, and I guess I'm still waiting for my phone to ring. But I mean, I certainly don't want to go stay at La Quinta or really any of the places that they film. But although the mansion is now on Airbnb, so you can go stay there. Um, But yeah, you're right. There was a, a bachelor contestant this week who has like a very regrettable mustache or and he Claire or not Claire, Claire, sorry, (laughs) my, my bad. Well, it opened with some of the men being like, I calling each other out that they ever expressed feelings for Claire as if that was a betrayal of Taisha, even though none of them knew that Taisha would ultimately be the bachelorette. In any event, Taisha's like, you have an interesting mustache. Um, is his name Noah? He's Noah, but He's he facing. was lovingly called Young Noah by Bennett. Okay, interesting. Yes. And, you know, first of all, Ashley, I and Jared were on and I can't really take them on. As people, because they once got to do Duncan Spawn. I, I knew, I, I know, I knew you were gonna have you a know, and it you only, know, Allison. This only stems from the fact that you're jealous that they got to wear Duncan pajamas for pay. It is, you know, how much this hit me where I lived. This I was so upsetting to me. Duncan is my dream sponsor. It is my dream. I'm putting this out there. I'm manifesting it Oprah style. Duncan, if you are listening, if anyone at Dunkin' Donuts, please, I'm calling you by your original <laughs> franchise name. All I want are two things. One, I would love some SponCon. Two, I would love a pair of your Duncan sneakers. Thank you in advance. Jared and Ashley did not deserve it. I'm sorry. They don't. <sighs> This is one of those wounds that's never going to heal. And so it's just, you know, I keep coming back to it. But Duncan means a lot to me. Like, am I like that woman who (laughs) went to vote at Fenway and was like, I got my dunks. I'm in line at Fenway to vote. She's like, don't worry, I got my dunks, guys. And it's like, okay. Like, that was the most New England thing I've ever seen. And also, artfully, I believe she got a small iced coffee. Yes. It was cool out. She got a small ice. And I was like, I think this woman is actually a pro because you would not. An amateur gets a large to wait in a quite long line to vote. I was like, you're committed to your civic duty and just sort of furthering whatever brand mess brand this is that I can also relate to as a person. 
Okay, I'm sorry I had to get that off my chest, but these two frauds were on the episode playing some kind of baby game. Doesn't matter. Young Noah emerges with that mustache. There did like an MMA date after that was disturbing to watch. And yes. basically, Tasha was like, this mustache needs to go. And he was like, but what if you don't like me without my mustache? And it's like, sir, it can only get better. I know that we say this about literally every season and and quite literally every single book that we've ever covered of this, you know, universe. The parallels between this kind of like second or like half season with Tasha and Molly have really been kind of alarming. So literally the most recent episode, someone said that Chasen quote needs a lesson. Hi, we're right here. Wow. Like we're we're still watching. Wow. And I think the other thing that's interesting is people at one point in this episode argued about the difference between a noun and an adjective. That did happen. Yes. Which is like ripped right from the Valerie Tripp text where Molly is learning. She's watching as, you know, different words are being put up on the board. And there's even a part where they had to do basic math, which is exactly what occurs in this book as well. Like Bennett, who went to Harvard, is unable to perform a mathematical equation that was literally subtraction. That was a tough moment. Although as someone who is not adept at math, I did feel for him, but he kind of, he did that to himself by coming out ahead with he led with a lot of bragging about his prowess at seemingly everything and then couldn't tell time. And and so that was tough to watch. But yeah, that was a tough moment. I mean, although, listen, if I was ever subjected to a multiplication tournament vis-a-vis this book, I was so stressed out reading this as a 34-year-old person. I was like, I yeah. don't know. When they were like, what's 13 times four? I was like, uh, let me take a beat on that. I'm not really sure. Got to think about that. That was tough. See, I think part of a disservice that I think happened recently in this nation, I was struck every time someone kept talking about all the math that was involved in the election. I was like, since when is adding advanced mathematics? Like, I understand that it is a basic function of mathematics, but this is not complex math. Like people kept saying, I didn't think there'd be math involved. We're adding or subtracting numbers. I mean, that's pretty like, I think even Molly could crush that. I mean, maybe. I don't know. Are we ready? I feel like we've I think never we have to we've never like we've never really drifted from this book, but let's formally dive into this book. I'm ready. I'm ready to learn many lessons, I guess. Yes. Let's do it. This episode is brought to you by Podcorn. Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to advertisers for native podcast sponsorships. What does that actually mean? Well, for our purposes, it means that we don't have to run ads on our show for products and services we don't believe in. We take this community really seriously, so we've in an ongoing way been trying to match with products that actually meet our mission and our values and are things that we're proud to support. So Podcorn has been a really wonderful service where we've been able to log on to their site and find a bunch of advertisers who want to work with us that we're excited to work with as well. If you're creator and you're looking for brands that you might want to work with, Podcorn is a great option. They have a marketplace mission to give podcasters transparency, creative freedom, and control. And you never give up exclusive rights to your podcast. Click the link in our show notes to learn how to sign up and to learn more about Podcorn. That's right. So just head over to podcorn.com and get started today. 
So this book came out in 1986, as many others did as part of that first batch. And I'm sure we'll talk a bit about this in relation to the Kirsten and Samantha books also out in that same time. Our official summary tells us that Molly is a lively, lovable schemer and dreamer growing up in 1944. Her stories describe her life on the home front during World War II. Molly doesn't like many of the changes war has brought, and she especially misses her father, who is away caring for wounded soldiers. But Molly learns the importance of getting along and pulling together, just as her country has to do to win the war. Molly plans a secret project to win her school's Lend a Hand contest. But the project turns out to be harder than Molly thought. (laughs) So That's the least of it. I'm going to say this just right out the gate right here. I think that Valerie knew where this character was going to go, but she also had a lot on deck because she knew that the Samantha books were come. That deadline was coming, right? We know all about, we know all about deadlines. So I think what happened was at some night, the television was on in the background and she Mm. heard the chanting of the hands across America (gasps) marathon. Oh my God. Yes. Which happened in 1986 in which, more than six Beautiful. million people tried to hold hands for 15 minutes. And she was like, okay, a She's lot like, of numbers. This makes total sense. She's like, I will not, you know, take part in a human chain because I have deadlines and I have paper I need to make. But but Molly will take part in a few different schemes and then eventually knit with her friends to win the war. You know, it would be Val who would actually want to make some kind of meaningful memorial to Hands Across America, which is arguably one of the worst charitable outings. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm thinking about like the ice bucket challenge, also really ridiculous and a waste of water. I'm thinking about black you know, squares. Oh my god. Yep, that a recent one. I mean, there's so many that are just really bad. Like, do they know it's Christmas? I mean, that season's upon us. I listen to it every year and every year I'm like, ooh, like we did that? That yes. happened? Yes. Um, you know, like that's a tough moment. And then you learn about Hands Across America. And please, everyone listening to this, stop this podcast right now. Hit pause. Jump on YouTube. Search Hands Across America. Please watch the promo video. You see a grab bag of like the weirdest 80s celebrities. And I'm putting that in scare quotes because it's like they weren't even famous then. And they're like, guys, like we got Burt Reynolds. Like he's going to hold hands with someone like maybe just his (laughs) assistant. Like we're not sure. It's like Kenny Rogers. It's like the most random ragtag group. And you're like, what in God's name happened here? And to what end? Like in some ways, like this book has not been written, but it's like the Beatles wrote I Want to Hold Your Hand in 1964, I believe. And then when we get to 1986 and it's like Hands Across America, it's like, where did all this handholding get us? I mean, is it something about the poverty or like the bankruptcy of Reaganomics? Like maybe, I don't know. I just have to believe that that was on in the background. I do. I just absolutely have I to mean, believe I mean, I think that. it's impossible to see any other reading of this or inspiration for this. And also, it's like the most purposeful misreading of what espionage actually involves in a way where I'm like, are you throwing us off your own scent, Val? Like, what's up? I'm going to say a name. Okay. Phyllis Latour Doyle. Here's here's what Phyllis was doing in 1944 while Molly is, you know, collecting bottle caps and and whatnot. She's a child, I know. Okay. 
Phyllis Doyle parachuted into Normandy. She was a highly trained agent taking part in a clandestine special operations executive plan to develop resistance against Nazis. This is from an article called Crafty Wartime Spies. Her weapons of choice, the detailed secret code she hid in her knitting. (gasps) So it's like... Oh Phyllis is, God. she's like living in a different century altogether. She's like, I've seen the Bayou tapestry. It's, it's okay. She's it's, like, honestly, knitting a heel is the least of it, ladies. She's like, um, so she pretended to be a teenager. I kind of <gasps> like we could do this. Um, we could. What, how'd she get into it? What do we have to do? Okay. So she pretended to be like a coquettish teenager and she was quote helpful and talkative with German troops. I can and then do that. she sent 135 coded messages to allies um, before the liberation of the country. And she says, I always carried knitting because my codes were on a piece of silk. I had 2000 I could use. And I just like want to say two quick things about this. People send us that meme all the time of, you know, embroidery being undervalued because it's a women's art, which is like a hundred percent true. But I think about the fact that, you know, this is one form of resistance during the war. The most famous code work, of course, is um, the Navajo who use their language as a code for the United States government. And it's like, we deserved neither of these things. Like ordinary people did not deserve Phyllis going this hard nor did they deserve a group of people who'd been historically disenfranchised and robbed of their language using it to help, but they did. That's 100% true. Also, have you, speaking of espionage and like breaking things down, have you ever heard the story about Lucille Ball in World War II? No, but I'm I'm ready to be wowed. Okay, thank you. So Lucille Ball is driving home from the studio during World War II, and she's just had some dental work done. She had a filling put in. And she's driving home. She's like, that's so weird. Like, I hear talking. Like, and she's like on a like very empty street. It's very late at night. She's driving home. She's like, that's so weird. Like, I hear talking and there's like no one around. I'm like in like a place that, where there's no houses. Like, there's nothing. It's just me in this car and the radio's off. No talking. She's like, that's so weird. So then the next night she s- continues to hear voices and she's like, what's up? I don't know what led her to do this, but after a series of nights, like she reports this and she's like, look, I think you're going to think I'm crazy and like, I'm okay with that. But just know like in this area, I hear talking and I'm not sure where it's coming from. And it like turned out that like her filling was picking up a radio frequency of Tokyo Rose and she helped to like basically blow up a, a spy ring that was like designed to help Japan in the United States. And you tell me to go to the dentist listen (laughs) you're you need to take care of your teeth i'm just gonna leave it there you need to take care of these teeth i i will continue to send you photos of george washington's dentures like i will do that i know i know it comes from a place of real love i'm just saying i mean or think about it this way allison you could be a spy breaker like you could be like lucille ball like that'd be cool That's very true. I think it's fortunate that she was famous because I think another woman claiming she heard voices, that would have resulted in a a lifelong institutionalization. It ends a different way. We'll say that. It goes a different direction. Um, Yeah, but I need to like fact check my own story, but I have read that somewhere and I will post the book where I read that. So I love that. I love that story, though. But anyway, suffice to say, we've missed our calling and we're just putting it out there. If you want to recruit us for some light spy work, you know, we can make our own code through emojis and choice gifts. I don't think I'll be knitting. I I think something that, you know, spoke to me in this book is 
Molly overhears, or she doesn't overhear, it's part of a plan. All of the people in the third grade are going to try to contribute to this big drive, right? That summary didn't really get into that. And so the boys are going to make a massive aluminum foil ball, which sounds about as useful as it will be large. And the girls decide that they are going to make socks and they're going to knit socks. And that's incredibly hard. I'll just say, yeah. Have you done this? No, absolutely not. We'll so never. My mom, who made all of my Molly additional clothes and like ma- made clothing throughout her life, always says socks are among the hardest things to make, period. I believe it. It all so- seems hard to me. So, like, I'm amazed that these nine year old nine year olds were going to take this on. Like, that seems very brave. Well, I mean, they were overshooting. And I can tell you that even. Because where I work now, we have a machine and what it did was it finished socks. So Mm. even when it became more standardized to have machines make socks, people almost always still had to finish um, like the toughest parts around the, obviously I'm very skilled at talking about this, like the top part and then kind of where it comes together around, not the ankle. Where the sock becomes the the sock and then the sock becomes the sock again. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. We're technical. Very technical. And Molly is like, guys, I don't think we can do this, but she's also just jealous of everything Allison wants. Well, I think we have to go back to understand like what actually happens here, because this book opens with takes us to school with Molly. So, you know, we've kind of visited the politics of the family in book one. Like we understand the Ricky of it all. Like, we know, what's going down. Rich. And also Rich, excuse me, the (laughs) rebranding. I forgot. Um, But now we're in school, and that's kind of another whole political minefield as far as Molly's life is concerned. We've seen that she has, like, unnecessary hostility to Allison with one L in book one, and we meet Allison again in this book. But what's interesting is, like, you get a picture of what school is like in 1944 or 43, where it opens with her teacher singing God Bless America at a piano. But what's truly stunning about this scene is you quickly grasp that this is not about God Bless America – there's something else going on. And, you know, like we will do some dramatic readings of this. You draw your own conclusions. And as I've said, just to give like straight people like total fairness here, I understand that we all have favorite teachers and it's totally platonic. Like I get that. But sometimes there's something else going on and I need to make space for that too. So here we go. Opening line of this book. Molly McIntyre loved to look at her teacher, Miss Campbell. Miss Campbell's hair was brown and so smooth and shiny it reminded Molly of dark polished wood. Most of the time, Miss Campbell wore her hair pinned on top of her head in a soft roll, but sometimes, like today, she wore it down in a page boy. Her long glossy curls just brushed her shoulders and swung like a dancer's skirt when she turned her head quickly. Molly touched the ends of her own hair. Sticks, she thought. My hair is as straight as sticks. But you know what? The rest of Molly... Perhaps not straight. (laughs) No. Am I crazy, Allison? Like, you tell me. No. So we learn somewhat unnecessarily that Miss Campbell has a fiance. And because she is trying to keep some boundaries between her students and her personal life, she won't divulge. So Molly has invented an entire world in which Miss Campbell is dating a soldier And upon his triumphant return, Molly will get to be a bridesmaid. But I think, you know, much like the film Bride Wars, there's 
one conflict related to the weddings, but the actual conflict is like the two women wanting to be each other. So listeners go revisit Bride Wars. It's not what you think it is. That's all I'm going to say. And I think, you know, we we encountered this most recently, I think, in some ways where, you know, I think Addie had a very special relationship with her teacher. Um, Kirsten's 100%. friends and relatives had a very special relationship with their teacher. Samantha, I feel like not so much because it's really about her learning from Nellie, I think, more. Yes. And um, but what's interesting is like. All of those relationships that you point us to were very special relationships, but they're defined by either traits that like behavior or traits that the teacher has. And really the way that the teacher makes, you know, in any of these cases, Addie or Kirsten feel. And this opening scene is 100% not about like she's such a beautiful singer or she makes me feel like I'm really smart. It's like this woman is beautiful. And, you know, yeah. I can see that in a very, like, platonic way is, like, aspirational. Like, you see another woman and you're like, whoa, I wish I looked like that. Or, like, I hope I grow up to look like that. But I think, too, it's, like, totally normal and, like, probably common for people to also be like, whoa, she's beautiful, period. She also is described a lot as fair. And I think that's something that comes out quite a bit with Molly's books is, like, what's fair or unfair and sort mm-hmm. of, like, justice, I think, is very yes. important to her. And it's something that comes out with the mother as well. She also is kind of teaching Molly, which I think is really valuable for kids, like, when secrets are good or, or when secrets yes. are not so helpful. Towards the end of the book, she gets to be in the newspaper with Miss Campbell, and it's, like, that one in Molly's Smith scrapbook. <laughs> What? No. Yeah, I- that was a big deal. It's it's obviously a big deal. And I think, you know, the only downside to Miss Campbell is that she insists on placating Howie and having the multiplication tournament that he calls for in the beginning of the book. Howie's kind of extra and obsessed with math for reasons that no one fully understands, but he asks for the multiplication tournament, the girls and boys line up, and then she pr- proceeds to fire away like multiplication questions to them. And if you get it wrong, you have to sit down. And this is like super yeah. traumatic. I remember having a similar thing when I was in fifth grade. And basically what I would do to game the system or kind of scam is I would ask if I could go to the ladies room at that time. And I would hide in there. Like, I was like, bye, I'm not coming back until this is over. So I did think there's writing in here that's just really funny. And so part of where this goes is now it's Molly's turn. Eight times seven. Molly froze. The eights, the worst or her worst. She hated the eights. And part of what's great is the illustrations are really, really phenomenal. And Molly pretty much immediately goes to an 11 and just wishes that she could completely disappear. Um, She says, maybe I could step back into the cloakroom and hide. Maybe no one would miss me. Um, She just completely wants to annihilate herself from the face of the earth to not have to give the answer 56 and then she does something that I know you also do. She makes a big show of making notes for kind of no reason on page four. Excuse me? Like she takes up almost a whole piece of paper and she writes the answer in big numbers. And like taking excess notes is one of your cues. Cues for what? That I'm like spiraling? So I think we're both similar in that we take a lot of notes when we're very interested or not at all interested, which really keeps people guessing. That is correct. 
<laughs> it really does. Sometimes I feel like it turns into if I'm at something where I'm deeply unhappy yeah. with what's happening, I go from like, you know, sort of optimistic interest to I'm keeping the official record for the human rights trial that will never take place that we both know should. But I will say on that theme that the most iconic illustration I have ever seen in an American Girl book took place yeah. in this book. Allison, you know what I'm talking about. So when she's in line and she's freaking out, we've all been there. Like you can think about, you know, was it gym class for you when you had to do the presidential fitness test? Like not to trigger anyone else on this podcast, um, you know, multiplication tables, whatever it is. For me, it was a spelling bee. But on page 11 of my book, you see Molly looking absolutely terrified, and she's backed up against the wall in front of a poster of the um, galaxy, and she says, it just says, I wish I were on another planet right now. And it's like, yeah, 2020 vibes. We all do. Thanks. What's so brilliant about this illustration, too, and I know that we've really loved them in this series so far, Mm -hmm. is... They somehow really convey that feeling of when you're a child, especially, and you shrink into yourself. Like you really truly don't want to be somewhere and you know you don't have the power to change the situation. And just the way that she kind of has her hands pinned behind her against the wall, this somehow this illustration, like it reminds me of of Kirsten when we just love to talk about them. There's so much depth here and the way that like the rings yeah. of the planets just kind of create this like tilted oh halo God. around her head. Yes. Um, and I think too, there's something so much that, I mean, I was reading a tweet and it was like, were you incredibly anxious the whole time anyone else read in school or, or were you normal? And I guess I assumed that everyone was like reading every word and just like hoping the other people would nail it. And what I like about this scene is Molly is so vulnerable. And in almost every other scene, she's sort of brash and always thinks she has the best idea. And part of what follows is the boys saying they're going to make this six foot tin, you know, tin foil ball. um, And the girls are tasked with knitting socks, which Molly can't do. So she's panicking. Well, and I think it's also like, she has a real sort of like leader energy and it's sort of like something that's a hard truth for us to sit with considering we both identify as Molly's is that Val trip isn't the only trip in this book. There's also quite a bit of an ego trip that happens where Molly just assumes that she should be in charge because she has all the best ideas. So she's sort of like, you know, feeling sorry for herself after this math loss. And she kind of overhears her new classmate, Grace, um, ask if they should knit socks. And the teacher's like, great idea, girls. Like, you can all do that. And then Molly's immediately like, that's it. Like the (laughs) vendetta has been established because someone dare suggest an idea without like clearing it with her first is like basically the conflict. There's also a great line that Allison, it would be her idea. Always trying to get in good with Miss Campbell. (laughs) And then she's trying to really concentrate and come up with a counter offer to the girls. One of the later lines, Woody Halsey wanted to dig an air raid shelter for the school. All we'd need would be some shovels. And part of what I liked about this scene is there were always those people who were just kind of coming up with like the far left ideas. And Molly is just trying to concentrate and plot her way out of this. Um, And I really loved in this book how much um, 
because I think this is a theme of the series, these third graders are constantly being told about the war. They're constantly thinking about it, but they're also really removed from it. And they're being asked to do so many things on a daily and weekly basis, but it's so, um, it's so amorphous at the same time. Like I did a talk the other week and listener Laurel asked me, so all these people are doing victory gardens. Literally, how is the food getting to soldiers or or how is food actually going from victory gardens and farms to the government? And I think part of what this book is showing is like, there's all this frenetic energy around sacrificing, making and giving But Molly only hears these like really highly selective reports from her dad. Like it's very far away for her. It's very far away. And I think sort of an idea that we'll carry through this book is like, what does citizenship mean when you're Mm -hmm. a child? And especially during wartime and, you know, like starting your day with God bless America at school. It's like this is a very centered idea, like the fact that and, you know, as you're saying, everything in their curriculum is bringing them back to the war. Like they're learning where London is and Molly sort of spaces initially because she's again still deep in her feelings about math. Um, you know, but everything is taking them back to the war and to their obligation to the war effort. But what does that mean when you're a child? And what does it mean for like your personhood to be defined by citizenship as opposed to something else? So like I keep thinking back to when you and I saw Toni Morrison speak years ago and she was saying that, you know, in her lifetime, the central identity of Americans shifted from being defined as a citizen to a Mm. consumer. And, you know, Molly's life has not made that shift yet. Like certainly with her penchant for machinations, I can see her riding around in a Mary Kay car hosting Tupperware parties by the fifties. But at least right now, like she's deep in the citizenship place. That's where she's putting her energies. But it's also really unclear to me, like, what is that supposed like, what kind of meaning are you supposed to find there if you're nine years old? Well, and, you know, Linda Carver has written a lot about this. There are rights and there are obligations. And right now, Molly mm-hmm. pretty much only feels the weight of the obligations because the the rights that her family has are largely taken for granted or they're things she can't exercise yet, like voting because she's too young or, you know, she can't serve on a jury yet, things like that. I was really taken aback by the description of schooling in the 1940s in the back of the book. And obviously it emphasizes nationalism and and those kinds of thinkings. But I think part of what this peek into the past is doing is very much of the 1980s, which, you know, it's like in big, bold letters telling you, yes, school was harder. Yes, school was more patriotic. Yes, school was better. Teachers like Miss Campbell were usually stricter than teachers are today. Classrooms more qui- classrooms quieter and more orderly. Um, students marched in and out of the building in neat, orderly lines. There were separate playgrounds for boys and girls, and it it kind of goes on to talk about America the Beautiful and the Star Spangled Banner. And I I can't say for sure about the 1980s, but. I think like a a major difference between then and now. Um, Well, first of all, school was highly traumatic for a lot of people in the 1940s and 1950s with integration. Mm -hmm. So to say that everything was like neat and and wonderful is not true. That's only a few generations away. Um, But the other thing I kept thinking about was all this assumption of like orderliness and patriotism 
schools are very strict places today in many places, and students are put under a lot of surveillance and their punishments are very severe. And, and I think, you know, neither of us works in, in a classroom environment now, but if you work in a city and you work near a high school, there are police everywhere. And that is partially an artifact of this time period. Well, and also going to school during the pandemic, if you're attending remotely now, there's a whole suite of softwares that are entirely designed on the premise that you can't trust a student to be assessed unless you have cameras turned on them and turn off all their browsers and turn their phone or like be able to trace what they've looked at in their browser right before the test and turned off their phone and what were they searching for on their Wi-Fi and all of this other stuff that feels like because it is very you know, encroaches on your rights. It's, you know, it is very intrusive. It is, you know, it is disruptive. It's not something that I would look back on fondly if I was attending school right now. There's also a gap I kept thinking about where, you know, everyone is making sacrifices with food, but there's an entire plot line where Molly and her friends are enjoying bread. And I kept thinking like a lot of, um, Behaviors in schools are often, or really any context, can be tied back to hunger or to food insecurity. And something like the marshmallow Mm -hmm. test, you know, measuring children's ability to not eat marshmallows in front of them, it's come out that much like other metrics, it's really just testing whether you come from a food insecure family or not. And I keep thinking, like, Mm -hmm. there's so much in this book about sacrifice, but the sacrifices are really incremental. Like Molly can't get new boots, but she still has boots or Molly can't eat exactly Mm. what she wants, but she still has plenty to eat. And how different this story in particular would be if there was someone who couldn't participate in the knitting drive or, you know, couldn't partake in other things because they themselves had so little that they had nothing to give. I think something's going on here too that's interesting is like, Obviously, as you said, the peek into the past is sort of strange, um, per usual. First of all, it goes without saying all of the children depicted are white children and the peek into the past. But something that interested me, like picking up on your thread of patriotism and sort of like the erasure of real issues in this time period, um, like hunger and, you know, all kinds of insecurity is kind of the difference between prescription and practice and how that might help us think with what things like what the lived experience was in this moment. So like, as you mentioned, they have um, signs and magazine ads from the period in the back of the book that basically support this meta narrative that everyone was telling children they had to be extra patriotic during the war. And that was the driving force in thinking about the war and in framing their daily experience. But we have no idea how kids read those magazine ads or like, did they just flip right (laughs) past them? Like, okay, where's the cartoons? Like, seriously, like what would a nine-year-old do? And I think without kind of thinking about how this stuff was received, it's really easy to make really broad assumptions about a time period. Like we grew up during 9-11. We were in high school and there was a brief window in time when some people referred to French fries as freedom fries. Now, let's pretend that we were making an American Girl book peek into the past about that time period. You know, there's an American Girl who's living in that time. And they just throw in a photo of a McDonald's franchise menu that says freedom. Somebody's handwritten freedom fries next to French fries. If I looked at that without any context or explanation, I would think everybody called them freedom fries when actually it was a very small part of the population. And I can't help but think that with this peek into the past where it seems like their use of images 
and printed materials is so lacking any broader context that like you would walk away thinking that everyone was obsessed with patriotism. Well, don't you think in contrast to Molly's experience, because there's a lot here about how she would be learning about the world to understand the war. I could very much be mistaken, but I would be very surprised if third graders in the United States today are learning about the histories of Iraq and, uh, and Afghanistan. Like I, I would be, or Syria, 100%. I would be very surprised. I think there probably are students who are learning about those countries in other ways, but I don't think in the same way that Molly and her classmates are being quizzed on the history of England, that that's happening about those countries today. Um, there was a great article by Nicole Hammer, who's a historian that came out on CNN this week. And it was about kind of shared sacrifice in COVID and looking at myths about particularly the World War II generation. Um, and she was quoting mm. a columnist, Jay Evanson, who said, this generation, like meaning us, has trouble with the concept of sacrifice. And he talks about World War II and depression and says, we could use their wisdom as well as their memories of ration books, chocolate shortages, and having to drive on bald tires because rubber was needed for the war. And what I love about this article, because I've seen this in oral histories, and I'm sure you have as well, people did not love this. <laughs> people did not love having crappy tires. People did not love mm -hmm. the hassle of ration books. They were the whole point of rations is you are compelled to behave differently in an effort to have both restrictions and fairness. And I love, love, love. She kind of writes about how like we can actually empathize differently with the struggles that they went through, but we can also draw a really important distinction, which is they had a thriving black market that was understood to be kind of an almost needed parallel and counterweight to all these things. She says they weren't naturally braver or more restrained or altruistic. They had something Americans today did not a clear message about common good and shared goals. And I think this is so true about masks, which we've talked about before. Like to some people, it's patriotic to not wear a mask. To some people, it's patriotic to wear a mask. And think of how many women you know were making masks for people for free. Whew. Yep. And it just also makes me think about um, I know you're not watching The Crown yet, the new season, but it it follows Thatcher, Margaret Thatcher's um, Britain. And basically, there are many scenes in which she point blank says, um, we need to focus on the mm. individual. We need to move away from a sense of the collective good. And a man breaks into the queen's bedroom and has a conversation with her about like how Thatcher's UK is like ruining things because it's like inviting everyone to only think about themselves and not being part of a collective. And as you're saying, like that was such a that's such a problem now. It's like created such a different context for what's happening right now, as opposed to what folks in the Great Depression and World War II were dealing with. And it to me, like that's a great loss. Like that we don't have that is a major deficit. So it's an interesting comparison. I also think, you know, very much like people of Molly's generation, like there are people today who make tremendous sacrifices for their country or even like the fact that people, I think many, many Americans have radically changed their lives to try to save other people from the spread of disease. And that's not really presented in a favorable light. Right. Like, and there are also people who, by virtue of where capitalism is, have no choice but to be out in the world. They they don't have a choice to do that or they're unhoused. Um, 
And you don't really see any kind of nuanced discussion of that. And I think part of it is like, you know, and Helen Peterson and others have shown us, it's like, we have to get rid of these, these, I really think they are toxic, like toxic beliefs about only some generations being good or Mm -hmm. only some generations Mm -hmm. having made the right sacrifices because it's not helpful and it's not true. I do a talk, as you know, every year about women and World War II in the Boston area. And this year, my talk was completely different. And it was partially because I understood the same oral histories completely differently. And part of what I was talking about was saying, like, there is very real bitterness here. These people were interviewed in the 80s about their time in the 1940s and 1950s. And so the equivalent of Molly's mom, women who are working have um, a very hard time piecing together childcare. They're missing men. Um, It's a community where men who should have been able to get out of service because of desperate financial need or dependence couldn't. And a lot of union leaders were specifically recruited because America um, to serve in the war. And it's like, people were still mad. Like it's been 40 years and people were still mad and we don't really tell that story. I don't think that much. Absolutely. And it's also the 1980s when we have the official national apology for Japanese internment, I believe in 1987 with the survivors receiving a monetary payment in the ballpark of something like $22,000 or like something wildly insignificant to the total destruction of their livelihoods and lives in many ways. So it's like even as the greatest generation, you know, is amping up in that celebration of this generation, it's not total, as you say. And also, as we've pointed out for other historical periods, there are people living through these, you know, massive moments of historical change who for whom it it's insignificant because their immediate needs are the only thing that they have the energy or, you know, privilege to think about. So for them, it's like when you're like, well, how was World War II for you? And they're like, what war? Like I was thinking about, you know, feeding my family, you know, like, yeah, I was aware that was happening and that affected my circumstances. But my war was, you know, in my household, in my pantry with, you know, the food insecurity that I was, you know, air quotes battling to like invoke Susan Sontag and her work on metaphors of like using one word, using one word to describe another, you know, that kind of martial language I think is thrown around so casually now, but, you know, I think especially with the greatest generation, like you have to be really skeptical of that, or you have to be at least have a critical attitude to think with it about why not to denigrate the service of folks who served in the war, certainly, but to think, why is it so important to celebrate these people Mm -hmm. and who is not being celebrated right now? I think along those lines too, because we talked about this a bit with Felicity. I actually got some real Felicity vibes in this book because Felicity Mm. is all in for a cause, as is Molly, even if she hasn't worked out the mechanics or like exactly what she believes or others believe, like she's in, like she doesn't need all the details. Um, But I think what's really interesting is like the way that Molly's patriotism is is manifest in this book and and the way that, like you're saying, with the dual meaning of language, she wants to collect the bottle caps. And I think there's really something to the fact that like she cannot knit and she does not want to take part in this kind of conventionally or traditionally feminine activity with this other group of women. Part of it is her like need for Miss Campbell's validation. Part of it is her obsession with like taking down Allison, who's very nice to her. 
But I think a lot of like, I think this really kind of circles through Felicity as well. Like both feeling like strange about things that are conventionally female world activities like Mm -hmm. knitting um, and the way that Felicity like really rejects having to do embroidery and really rejects her lessons about tea and then ultimately kind of channels something about herself in both cases, like they're spunky. Like Molly basically shows up to this activity and is like, but what if we did a different activity? Yup. I mean, she's actually like, (laughs) it's so obnoxious. I was reading this and I was like, that's when I wanted to scream and could not. Cause I was like, you're out of your mind. Like, so just listeners not read just to give you like quick catch up. Yeah. She decides that they should be, air quotes, top secret agents, meaning they will collect bottle tops, which, by the way, the Boy Scouts are already doing. And it's like, we kind of don't need to be affiliated with that, but like moving on. And like that work's already happening. Okay. And also, (laughs) like, you know that your class has committed to do like the knitting project, like the team that you're on is already has a project. And basically, because it's not her idea, she's like, and we won't be doing that. Her two friends are like, I don't know. Allison very nicely brings over a handwritten, which like, wow, the turnaround on this invitation production. (laughs) Like she created these invitations in what, like an hour after getting home from school and she comes over to deliver them. And Molly and her friends are like hiding in their hangout above the garage. And she's like, shh. And her friends are like, literally like, why are we hiding from our friend? And Molly's like, I can't get into that right now. Like we are top secret agents. So they see this invitation. It's like, wow, like we're going to have lunch and snacks and hot cocoa and all knit socks together and hang out like that's actually actually sounds really fun and molly's like no nope. reasons i will never explain it's not fun and it's not happening and then basically bullies them into doing her plan but oh my god the part where i screamed was so they're out it's raining it's not going well they're getting no bottle tops and then they end up at allison's house and we get an illustration that truly made me scream because <laughs> I don't know why they thought that going over there, they were like, we're going to spy on them or like see what's happening. So of course they're looking in the window and it's like, they're all warm and dry and like having a great time together. And all of a sudden, like they hear a voice behind them and it's Allison's mom. Yes. Who could be actually the real spy. Like they never saw her coming. And part of what they say is let's spy on them. Mrs. Hargate says, you girls are late for the knitting bee, but that doesn't matter. Come along. Allison was so worried, like Academy Award to her. Allison was so worried when you didn't get here with the other gals. She was afraid you weren't coming at all. But I told her you'd never be so rude. Oh, my God. Like, she is not playing. But if you look at this illustration on my page 50, and I have, like, the older edition, it says, well, what have we here? Boomed a voice very close by, and she snuck up behind them with an umbrella and a rain jacket. And it's like, if you think about it, this lady had to put on a (laughs) rain jacket and grab an umbrella and sneak up behind them to have this conversation. Yeah. I I love... I love Molly's tenacity. I see some of myself in her where like she knows this idea is going poorly, but she won't give it up. And mm-hmm. even when she inserts herself into, you know, the the knitting party, she realizes that all the girls are having a meltdown because they're eight and nine years old and they can't they can't steal the deal. They can't make the socks. They're like me trying to think of the word for I almost just said knee. Why can't I get this? The bottom, wow. the heel. They yeah. can't get there. I have to heal on on this wow. language. Part of what I love is basically Molly comes in and like needing to be the hero. She's like, we'll just make a blanket. We'll make a blanket. <laughs> 
Well, like, or she won't even give them that. She's like, I'm no. just here visiting you. They're like, oh, you going to knit? And she's, she, they're like, where are your knitting needles in your yarn? And she's like, not, not here for that. No. No. She's like, I'm just here visiting. Like, I'm kind of doing my own lend a hand project. And Allison is so defeated. And this is after Allison is like, I'll get you yarn and needles. Like, it's fine. Like, I'll get you cocoa. Like, thank you so much for being here. And it's like, Allison, why do you even want to be this person's friend? Like, she's a mess. But, like, she only gets invested when she can reassert herself as, like, the alpha and intellectually claim ownership of the new idea. Yeah. I feel that, though. Yeah. I mean, no comment. Yeah. She's she's like, this project isn't going where I could. could. Um, and then Molly kind of gets called out for the fact that their bottle cap hunt wasn't really going anywhere um, because the girls very generously offered to help her. And they say, could we all help you with that? It isn't such a great project. Not like the blanket, which is also like another like come around compliment for her own concept where she's like, you know, I did come up with the blanket. She's like, have you guys heard of a blanket? I don't know. (laughs) Um, It is kind of interesting though, too. Like one of the few places I think where class comes into the book, because obviously all these people are very, very comfortable. Um, Grace ends up kind of saving the day. She's like, oh, I live in an apartment. And like, they hadn't even thought that they could hit more people. And they've kind of been in the fancy suburbs. And then they get all these bottle caps going to her apartment. But the scene that we don't get, which is the one that I want, is like when after they make the blanket and they go back to school after the weekend and she sees Miss Campbell and Miss Campbell's like, Wow, great blanket. Um, what's with the bottle caps? Like, where did that come from? <laughs> like, what is her response to that? Yes. Yes. And I love that there's a war on, but they can give every girl a big blue ribbon in recognition <laughs> of of this. And I don't remember this. I don't, I mean, maybe it was subtle and, and worked for me as a child. This book once again ends with just like an extended analogy related to the war where part of Molly's lesson is that like secrets aren't always so good and allies are better to have. Um, And she's learned through this book that quote allies, people who work together for the same goal. And it's like, okay, but sometimes that goal is bombing Japan. Like it, (laughs) it makes me nervous. Like the flattening, right? Sorry. That's like a very poor choice of words, but like the equalizing of these things that are so completely different. Yeah. And I think this is a carryover through line from book one, which is that this is how they've chosen to discuss the war. Yeah. Obviously, I'm still thinking about the erasure of the Holocaust from the first book's discussion of what motivated the war to begin with, which as time goes on, only gets more and more surprising to me that that happened in the 1980s. But also it's like, as you're saying, the sort of um, magical thinking that's happening around allyship, like certainly now versus then, like our notion of what it means to be an ally is very different. But also, I think in a different way. So it's like, yes, the through lines about the war are kind of surprising and very oversimplified or like the logic is very like binary driven, like good versus bad. Yes, But I think, too, it's like this is getting at a central theme of all the books, which is what does it mean to be a good friend? And what story are we getting here about what it means to be a good friend? And frankly, I don't know that Molly is the poster child in this book. Like she's learned some lessons. I don't think she's actually learned healthy friendship lessons because, you know, sometimes being a friend is about being being supportive 
of your other friends and of, you know, actually thinking about group needs or the collective need, as we were saying before, versus your individual need. And I actually don't know that the solution in this book actually satisfies because Molly hasn't actually been asked to sacrifice (laughs) her individual need for the collective good. No, I mean, she didn't get new boots. That was a bummer, but she still had boots to wear. Reviewer Rachel on Goodreads agrees with you in in what's a, a pretty quick but important indictment. Her review reads only, Molly is a bad friend. Honestly, tough talk, but fair in this book. Truly. Reviewer Scott says, this book is action-packed. The plot is unpredictable. (laughs) So I don't know if this was auto-generated. I also enjoyed Danielle's feedback. Despite the improvement from the first book, this book lacks noticeable depth compared to others in the American Girl series. Leaves me feeling very disappointed. I have to say, people really did not care for this book. I, Not everyone, but more people than I would have thought. This book led me to finding wonders like the the sheet music for a song called I Wonder Who's Knitting for Me. It led me to photos of Queen Elizabeth knitting when she wasn't working on cars during World War II. Here's the thing, Mary. I know this is a bad take. I know that this season is going to present my queen in a bad light, and I can't deal with that right now. I think that it's wise of you to take a pause on this season. Like your history with this show is that you often like I need to watch it immediately because, you know, I so I'm in so deep. Okay, as we both are. But you kind of need you know yourself like this is actually like very like you kind of feel your way into it. Like, I don't want to say you're an empath with the crown, but you're sort of an empath with yourself. Like you have that self-awareness to know when you can take on the crown. And I sort of give you trigger warnings. Like when I watched season two ahead of you, I did have to let you know that there was a shocking amount of Prince Philip content, which is not a thing either one of us wants. No. And so then you kind of had to take some time with that before you could take that in. So I think that's wise, you know, be kind to yourself. I know it's just going to be a lot for me to handle because I know that the stuff with Diana is not going to be flattering, but I did see a preview where she was pointing out to her, like, you know, sometimes you can play to the crowd too much. And I was like, this is how I know I'm too far in. Cause I'm like agreeing with the queen. <laughs> well, what I would say, and I'm not done with this new season yet is that I actually don't think that there are heroes and villains. I think yeah. What this the long arc of the show is showing is the monarchy takes all prisoners. Like yes. everyone is captive to the crown, including the queen. Like everyone is losing something in order to, in her sense, I think her sense of duty is real and it's linked to her very real religious beliefs and her sense of honor and obligation. For everyone else, like there's complicated stuff where it's like you're just born into this. And, you know, so I mean, I actually think it's not about like this person's good, this person's bad. Like in some ways, like it's not taking on the moral tone of um, Molly learns a lesson, but (laughs) it is tough to watch for us anyone be critical of the queen. And yet, like, you know, she made some obvious, you know, as we all do, she made some mistakes. She's not a perfect person. Wow. I would say the only person who to me is a true villain throughout is Margaret Thatcher. And I'm not, again, I'm not done with the season, but I feel pretty confident I'm still going to feel that way when it's over. Yeah, I think this has made a lot of people kind of feel strange about the way they feel about that actress, because I think for a lot of folks, she's like a very important figure. And now that they have seen her this way, it's hard to unsee. 
you know, I've never seen that person show. And I'm wondering if it's like Fringe, which I've also still not seen, but your DVDs are on my shelf. <laughs> freak out. You mean the X-Files, like the most iconic? <laughs> not seen it. You know, it's like I hear it's very yeah. good. Haven't taken it in. <laughs> I never saw Star Wars till I was like 23. And then people lied to me and like made me watch them, watch like three of them in one day. And I was like, I still, I don't know what that was. Like, I guess I have to rewatch that at a different time. Here's the thing. Like, you are in 1952 (laughs) when it comes to some facets of pop culture where you're like, I do know the whole story behind Lucille Ball's (laughs) dental filling. I can't speak to Star Wars, Star Trek, Fringe, X-Files, Unsolved Mysteries, any true crime. I just, I refuse. Like, there are certain things where it's like, when I'm ready, I will do I know. it. And it's like, I will I ever be ready for Fringe? Like, I have, I'm going on a decade of owning your Fringe DVDs. Like, in some <laughs> ways, for common property purposes, like, I think I own them now. And like, I'm not saying like they're going to end up on eBay, but I'm just saying like, <laughs> thank you. Thank you for that. Like, I'm putting, <laughs> I'm putting it towards my personal wealth or my net worth. But, you know, I pass them every morning when I get dressed. It's this a is- monument to our friendship. I've we not just, seen them. We just talked about Molly being involved in an enterprise that did not interest her. So you've turned the fact that you didn't watch DVDs I gave you a decade ago into a tribute to our friendship, which I love. I will say, well, Allison, that's why I. This is why these books are hard for me because it's like I, I understand why I identify with this person. Like it's too real for me. Like I read these books and I'm like, I've done this. Like yeah, I've been this person. I am this person. Like this is hard when you see yourself on the page. Like my God, like it's challenging. It's like. I, you know, I don't know. I don't know what to say. I never need to write my memoir. It exists already. It's called Meet Molly. I have to read you because we asked, like, what do you think the lesson is of our social media followers on Instagram? So I have to share some of my favorites. A lot of you very impressively remembered that there was a chapter about the number 56. So wow, impressed. good on you. Eight times seven, seven times eight. Like, you got it. Some of you remembered knitting is hard. One of you, Kate, I'm looking at you. You did an SAT analogy, which is like, you may or may not know, like the key to my heart. You know, I love that. Anna is to Miss Winston as Molly is to Miss Campbell. Truer words, never been spoken. Wow. Um, She wears a Catholic school uniform to public school. (laughs) So true, Barbara. Like, truly true. Honestly, yes. Also, I love that Greta chose a different prompt, which is if Claire really did talk to Dale before filming. I I don't think so. I think that did happen. Well, no, I don't. I think she stalked him online and was like, I think he's hot. So I'm going to see what I can do here. What I will say is that I'm very closely monitoring some social media activity that suggests that Dale is like going out on dates now with other women. So like that is my concern. And I'll leave it. I agree. Yeah. Our friend, a peek into the pantry says swooping in at the last minute with a good idea excuses your selfish behavior earlier. Like that, that's the lesson. And it's like, I do think (sighs) that is, that is, you know, yes, that's, that's very tough, but fair. Yes. A lot of people. So like, I love this. Um, one of our, our other good friends, Tartan is a lifestyle. Totally agree. Um, that's true. Life. What a concept. This blanket is for one person. I, I okay totally yes that is a hundred percent like I was thinking that where it's like where are we going with this like yeah 
Imagine being like literally on a battlefield and you're wheeled off the battlefield and like God only knows what kind of shape you're in and you're like you've been traumatized by war and someone's like, good news, we have a blanket for you. <laughs> and it's like this blanket, coat of many colors blanket. Janet asks, is this the one where she's collecting scrap metal? Yeah, it is. Sure is. Um, also, bread being baked in a coffee can, question mark. <laughs> okay, so interesting you bring that up. This <laughs> is it? This Yes. So this book, honestly, I had like a very visceral, lovely memory. My mother and I both love brown bread in a can because it makes her feel connected to her mother, who was like a depression child and lived through the war. And it makes me feel very connected to my mother. Like I started tearing up thinking of like the smell that comes out of that can and then the way that it tastes when you cook it. And we would like scrape the can and eat it before it was cooked. It's really good, Mary. I, I, okay. Well, here's the situation. Like what I'm traumatized by is like on hot dog night, you know, like my mom would make beans, but she would also get brown bread in a can from that same company. And that was, Mary. I know. I, well, I mean, it's like, give us that spawn con. Like, maybe we can't get Duncan. Maybe we can get them. I don't know. I'm just saying. Um, that bread was traumatic to me and was a no-go situation. And But, like, I'm very happy for you that it has happy memories. But it's like, bread in a can? I don't think so. I like that you're coming at hot dog night from, like, a queenly perspective. And You know what? <laughs> This was not posh enough for my hot dog night. I love hot dog night. I love um, hot dog night. But it's like, we don't need bread in a can on hot dog night. We just don't. No. What do you think you are, Vanderbilt? Just eat a hot dog. Enough. Um, As a final thought on that, many of you shared that knitting is hard, and I could not agree more. Um, I was good at it for a short time, but have not done it in in a while and cannot crochet. In doing some research for this episode, I came across an initiative from the National World War II Museum, which is a a really great institution, and they do a kind of um, Molly-type revival called Knit Your Bit, um, which involves Hmm. over 10,000 knitters in all 50 states, and they have made more than 50,000 scarves to veteran centers, hospitals, and service organizations, and that is still running. Um, so I think that's a really cool way to kind of like take this in. And, um, if I was craftier, I would get involved, but I think that's a really wonderful thing to kind of get, get that story and and keep it relevant today. That's awesome. I will definitely look into that. I don't know how to knit, but it's like, maybe I'll figure it out. Maybe not. I'm always looking for new craft ideas during the Pearl Harder. That's what we learned. Wow. If only I understood what those words mean someday. So you have a knit and a pearl. Uh-huh. I'm seeing okay. I I won't say more than that and embarrass myself either, but I we have, listen, I'm impressed by that. I don't know what you're you. saying, but like I'm very impressed by it. We have a lot of very crafty listeners who are probably screaming listening to this discussion, but that's okay. I respect that. And I love when people message us, you know, not necessarily corrections, but what I would call like, you know, just like helpful information to, you know, broaden our knowledge about things. That's wonderful. And if people do want to reach out to you, where should they do that? Listen, before I give out my socials, I just want to say <laughs> moment of silence, moment of appreciation for oh. one Ms. Dolly Parton. Yes. The ultimate American girl who, as many know, donated a million dollars to Vanderbilt at the start of this whole thing. And now some of the money that she donated was used to fund research that in part 
is leading to some COVID vaccines that are being tested as we speak. So, you know, we should not be living in a world where GoFundMe and Dolly Parton are making our healthcare system run. But like, here we are. And thank you for Dolly Parton, who is not thinking just of herself, but of the collective good. Thank you, Dolly. Also, just want to give a shout out to the Connecticut Historical Society, where you and I will be giving an event, shockingly. Yes. So this December, right around the date of Pearl Harbor, we will wow. post all of our details. We will be given we will be giving a presentation on um, crafty girls and scribbling women and talking a bit about the history of friendship and actually also doing a craft together with you all, we hope. So please join us virtually. We're so excited to see you. You can ask us questions. It'll be a really fun evening. And with that, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, want to tell me the plot of Fringe, spare me some hours of viewing. <laughs> you can contact me on Instagram at Mimi Mahoney or on Twitter at Mary Mahoney 123. Now, Allison, if people want to like contact you to commiserate with you about having your best friend be someone who's holding DVD set hostage for a decade, where might they find you? I would love to hear your pearls of wisdom. Wow. You can find me at Allison Horrocks on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, you can also reach out to the show. We're at a girls pod on Twitter. We're also on Instagram with American girls podcast. And we have a website. That website includes links to things like our store um, where you can find us on T public. And it also includes episode notes for each episode. So the things that we mentioned that you can learn more about, you can find that there. And our Patreon, which we're yes. excited to put out our November episode very soon. Yes, we are. And in case you were curious, we're doing a Dear America this month. And in December, we are doing the Mariah Carey memoir, the meaning of Mariah oh Carey. I can't wait. I am over the moon. I am, you know, I'm just, I can't, it's beyond. I, I can't wait. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for Thank listening. Thank you so much. Stay safe. Thank you. Wear a mask. See you next episode.